Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. I feel really tired today. I don't know if I'm having a little relapse or what's happening, but after this, I think I'm going to take a walk and then watch a movie. I'm going to well, chill today. We just spent two hours listening, uh, you know, to an NRP course on uh, on your computer. That's a lot of hours to stare at the screen. Three almost three oh, hours. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but beautiful. So I uh, I did um, a traditional uh, NRP class with um, a midwife from Hawaii who has been um, practicing for almost 50 years. So um, yeah, was very, very interesting. And one of the things that she said that I really, I, I really jumped off and right onto this to record with you today, but one of the things I really have to like sit with and integrate is that, you know, I've been calling myself a traditional midwife because I don't want to be considered a midwife or, um, you know, a modern midwife or, you know, whatever I want to, I want to have something that delineates me as really respecting and honoring the roles and not intervening unless totally necessary. And, you know, all the things that I talk about on the podcast, but she said very clearly, she's like, you can't be a traditional midwife if you use medications and a Doppler, like that's not traditional midwifery. And so You'll have to come up with a new name. I have to sit with it. Yeah, you maybe. Yeah, you... I've been I've been thinking about what that might be, and uh, I think I told you Carol Pascucci. Um, she talks about traditional midwifery. I mean, um, sorry, classical midwifery. But anyways, it's just something that you know I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to just really like sit with what that means to me and how I feel about what she said. Cause I agree. I just don't have the training to feel confident enough to be able to do all the things that they do. But no, and you also, you also live in a, in a world that's different than somebody who's been practicing for 50 years. It's um, true. It's California. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. Uh, anyway, so that's me. How are you? What does the P stand for in NRP? I always forget program okay so neonatal resuscitation program yeah right a lot of people who are listening may not know what nrp was so i wanted to clarify that thank you thank you yeah that's Uh, that's what we do if a baby comes out and is not in their body if they're not breathing if they're struggling to transition we um help them so it was just a very different perspective from what we normally learn yeah what's new with me is um not much not much since last we spoke, and um, I'm still waiting on births now. Things are back into dates again, so I will start getting busy through all the way through March, um, and I'm sort of looking forward to it. You know, it's sort of a last little hurrah before I take some time off, so I'm looking forward to that, and I'm spending way too much time on social media um, because I have time. And I got into that bad habit when I was sitting on my couch for those weeks with not much else to do. So I was reading a lot of news articles and I was scrolling through Instagram and that sort of thing. And today, you know, I I was looking at Instagram and there's several posts from different people about vaginal exams. 
And I'm not sure if it's just coincidental or if there's something out there in the world, but one person had a post about vaginal exams in the office and the other person had a post about vaginal exams in labor. I think we've talked about that on one of our previous podcasts, but it's it never hurts to just say that, what what do we say about vaginal exams? I love when you test me on things. Oh, I don't do them very often. That's what we say. Yeah. Just make it up. Your favorite, your favorite line, or not your favorite line, but a line that I remember that you said once when we were sitting in your old kitchen was that when was the last time someone checked a tiger at seven centimeters? Right. Who checks the cervix of a tiger? Yeah, yeah. that's from Dr. Morningstar. She's yeah. beautiful. I remember when you read that. It still stuck mm-hmm. with me, and I use it when yeah. I, I use it when I teach now stuff too. So yeah. Um, but yeah, you can follow trends on Instagram. That's sort of what I've been doing, and I've been receiving emails and messages. By the way, you know, I stopped using Facebook, but I'm still on Instagram, so I'm still stuck with Mark Zuckerberg. But nonetheless, um, I have too many platforms to receive messages on. Mm -hmm. And when somebody writes me something and I need to find it, what they said, I have no Mm -hmm. idea where to look. I get real, I get lost. Is it messenger? Is it is it Instagram messaging? Is it uh, texting? Is it email? Um, mm-hmm. is, which email is it? Because I have three. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I can't find things. But anyway, I've, I've been getting a lot of emails the last couple of weeks about successful home breaches and twins. Obviously in other states by midwives, of course. Yeah. But obviously, I just want to thank the listeners who's, who take the time to send me that information because it makes me feel like we're doing good we are doing good yeah hey i you know i didn't say it when i was checking in but i went to a birth yes i i saw i saw the picture uh with tanya we attended I, a birth <laughs> yeah so tell us how was it the uh, first one oh. first one in what six months seven months eight months seven months yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe eight because you know I was still in LA, but the baby had delivered early June. So, um, so, so yeah, the woman was in it. labor and the baby came out. Is that how it was? <laughs> yeah, butter birth, man, butter birth. Um, it was her fourth baby. Oh, yeah, it was her fourth baby, and um, you know, when we got there because it was her fourth baby, I had thirty five minutes to drive. Oh, this is the really funny thing. So, what I learned about being here and being a midwife is there's no streetlights and I'm on country roads with no streetlights and fog and potential animals jumping out in front of me. So I was like, this is definitely different than LA. Like rushing down the LA freeway when it's open is very different than driving down a a windy country road with, um, with fog. Um, so I have to get used to that. Um, most of the time, you're not going to have fog. So most of the time, going five. No, there's 10 a miles, lot of fog here. Oh, that's is it? Oh, oh, really? Yes, Central Coast. Yeah, there's a lot of fog where we are because I'm close to the um, water. Yeah, but I was going to say that like ten miles in the Central Coast is actually ten miles. Yes. Ten miles in Los Angeles could any be anywhere from thirty minutes to two hours. <laughs> yes, yes, that's very true. There are different things, but it's just adjusting. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, we got there a little earlier than we needed to because you know how it is. You never know when she when it's just gonna go. And she knows her body very well after four babies. Um, so she was, you know, she was 
ch chipper and cheerful when we first got there, but it took maybe 35, 45 minutes before she was like upstairs and kind of cocooning herself in her room with her husband and um, never made a peep, even during pushing. Like we couldn't really tell that her sounds were changing because they weren't, she wasn't making any. So, um, but she started pushing and um, we went upstairs and um, I think her pushing phase was probably about 30 minutes, but she was feeling like it was taking a long time. And she kept kind of being a little conscious about that. We were sitting there at one point, she goes, you guys must just be miserable. And Tanya was like, what are you talking about? You're the one who's having a baby. We're, we're great. You know? Um, so it ended up, uh, being a baby that had a, uh, 15 and a quarter inch head. So it's big head. And I think that was part of what was going on. And the other part was, um, it had a double nuchal cord. So, you know, when you have a cord, sometimes the baby descending takes a little bit longer, but, um, absolutely perfect physiologic birth, no need for any interventions, no tearing. You know, that's a great way to get gorgeous. back in the water is to have right. a perfectly normal birth. It, it just is. Butter birth. Yeah. Great. I always talk about my very first birth um, that I did uh, when I changed over to home birthing. And I'm just so grateful that the mm -hmm. woman gave birth on the floor in front of her couch. Mm -hmm. It was perfect. Um, because if it hadn't been, you know, who knows how things would, would have changed. One of the things that's interesting is the client, when she said, you guys, you know, must be miserable or something like that. Yeah. that she doesn't realize for those of us in the birth world that, that watching a woman labor silently and beautifully is a spectator sport, <laughs> you know, and we're actually getting paid to do it as opposed to, you know, paying buying a ticket and going to watch you know, a sporting event. This is, this is, I, I don't, I don't mean it in a pejorative way. I mean it in it's, it's, we get joy out of watching that. Yeah, Especially I when think, it's a multip and you know, they're going to deliver vaginally and then the risk of transport is like zero, that sort of thing. Yeah. I think I would probably describe it to her a little bit different than you would, but um, yeah. Just you know, the, Bruce, that I, you know, I tell people that I have guy energy. I'm like, I'm a guy. And so I don't do what midwives do. And I think, of I yeah, and you shouldn't. You should be a guy. You yeah, like guys. I, a, um, I would probably have said, you know, uh, it, the oxytocin is addictive. Like being in that loving space with somebody in such an intimate way, like being invited and watching a woman in her power and watching a new soul enter <laughs> enter the world is what what else would we want to be doing? Scrolling Facebook? <laughs> well, you can, you actually, well, it's interesting to say that because you see when you, when you scroll on something and you see birth pictures, a woman laboring uh, in the water or holding the baby's head back with her hand or holding the baby on her chest, or it's a video of, of her and her husband in the water. That's sort of, you, we can't get enough of those. And if they weren't, if it wasn't something that gave us oxytocin release, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be, repetitively watching them. And I don't think that we can ever get enough, quite enough of those. And that's why yeah. they're, they're constantly, at least, you know, we obviously follow people in the birth world. So we get a lot of that stuff. I'm sure people, you know, a guy that plays for the LA Kings does not follow birthing uh, right. websites and right. whatever. And so he doesn't get that sort of oxytocin rush there, or maybe he wouldn't get it anyway, but we do. So it's yeah, great. yeah, we love it. So today, um, I know you probably have a couple of things you want to share first, but I just wanted to tell our listeners today we are talking about um, 
gestational hypertension and preeclampsia because I've had a ton of people over the years that you and I have been working together when I just kind of briefly talk about that I have a protocol. I have so many people who write to me and are like, okay, what's your protocol? <laughs> so I just figured that we would um, we would just talk have that be our topic today. And I'll go over my, my, my protocol as a midwife. Yeah, it's a really good topic because it's not uncommon. And with, yeah, and so especially now in times of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got a couple of things here. Just real. Right. Here's a I real knew quick, you would. Yeah, you know I do. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a real quick, this was a, a study that came out of ACOG, um, which I like it because it's original research and it's the title of the paper is Survival Without Severe Neonatal Morbidity in Very Preterm Twins According to Planned Mode of Delivery. So I'm not going to talk about preterm twins. I'm not going to talk about anything. All I'm going to talk about is the fact that they looked at extremely premature and premature twins, and they looked at the outcomes between those twins that delivered vaginally and those twins that were delivered by cesarean section. And the conclusion was planned cesarean section for very preterm twins is not associated with higher survival to discharge with, without severe neonatal morbidity than planned vaginal delivery. These results suggest that very preterm delivery should not be considered a per se indication for planned cesarean section in twin pregnancy. So my point of bringing this up is simply, obviously in the home birthing world, we're not gonna deal with this, but simply if we have evidence that suggests that vaginal delivery for preemie twins is not worse for them and outcomes than cesarean delivery, then yeah. I think the logical extrapolation could possibly be that confirm <laughs> twins as well. What do you think, Liz? I think so. Maybe even more so because they're terms. Oh. So, yeah. More so? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're so we're so rebellious. Yeah, well, it's it's easy. It's so easy to be snarky because <laughs> everything that's being done is just the opposite of what normal people would really should be doing. You know, it's interesting in in the lecture today at one point she was she was talking about that it's, it's common sense. Birth is common sense. You know, a lot of these traditional midwives have never been in school. They've never, they've never studied or written or, you know, any of that stuff. It's just common sense because it's nature. It's, it's, it's what we're supposed to be doing. So I love that because you and I are always talking about common sense. Mm -hmm. It's, it, mm -hmm. it's common. I mean, it's actually, it's, it should be common. It's actually not common. <laughs> Right. Maybe we have to change the name of that too. Maybe we, you know, we have to change the definition of common sense. Or the or the common sense birth birth uh, workers. <laughs> yeah, you know, you mentioned briefly at one point, I think a couple of weeks ago or something, that you and I should do a book. And I think that that's a project that you and I should actually work on. Oh no, I I thought we were this summer. Oh yeah. Well, we didn't tell anybody about that. So now we're telling people about that. Oh, now we're telling people we're, we're going to be writing a book, you guys. We got Yay. We have to. Yeah. And I'm also working on my uh, home twin birth paper with Rixa. Um, that's getting dialed up again. Sort of right. got lost in the last couple months, but now it's going to get dialed up again. So work on that. Okay. Um, just real briefly, another California sort of absurdity, questionable why are they doing this sort of thing? Is it in the category of if it if it ain't broke, don't fix it? Well, mm -hmm. California doesn't have that policy. Okay, California's <laughs> always fixing things that aren't broke. And mm -hmm. one of the things was a, was approved in September of 2018 that went into effect 
on January 1st of 2022. Why they waited four years for this, I'm not exactly sure, but I never heard about this legislation. Now, maybe that's just because I wasn't paying attention, but a lot of things that go through state legislatures, most of the citizens of the state have no idea unless they tune into their, you know, some website or C-SPAN or something, whatever, so they can see what's going on in their own state or their, or their public broadcasting service. So here's a law that was, it's called, um, what's it called? Well, it doesn't really have a name, all right? But it's, uh, it was approved uh, in, in September of 2018. And it says it's about e uh, electronic prescriptions. You know, oh, yeah. we're always in, in all time, we used to write prescriptions on a, on a prescription pad. As a matter of fact, California last year maybe spend almost $400 to get these prescription pads from designated printers, probably related to the people in Sacramento somehow, <laughs> their brother-in-law or something who ran the printing shop. <laughs> and, you know, so I spent $400 to get these prescriptions. Now I can still use them, but they did that when they, when they had this law that was known that they knew was going to go into effect in a year later, where you now have to have the ability to have electronic um, prescription writing, every private practice physician has to have that. And if you don't, you're in violation of the law. So this is another thing where a, a normal citizen suddenly finds themselves a criminal without knowing it because they right. passed laws that you didn't understand. Now, right. fortunately, Dr. Flores has this app and, I, and she's going to instruct me how to do it. But I just found out about this last week because pharmacies wouldn't take a, a fax that I'd been using forever. And yeah. so the question was, why did they do this? And it, and I gotta get my glasses here, but it says- Well, doctors are on, the only people it feels like that still does faxes. Nobody does faxes anymore. So I get that. It's kind of antiquated at this point, but keep going. But, the, but so, but it was working. It was working and that faxes, phone calls, calling in a prescription, now you can still call on a prescription if it's 10 o'clock at night and the pharmacy's closed. But in the daytime, they're gonna expect you, they're giving, a, they're giving a grace period here where they're not rejecting it. But some of the, some of the major pharmacies like CVS are giving, mm -hmm. gave me a hard time. Mm -hmm. And they're the, the same ones that gave, you know, that won't fill an ivermectin prescription too. I mean, they're just, the, the bigger something is, the less personal it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this bill would require healthcare practitioners authorized to issue prescriptions to have the capability to transmit electronic data transmission prescriptions and would require pharmacies to have the capability to receive those transmissions. The bill would require those healthcare practitioners to issue prescriptions as an electronic data transmission prescription unless specific exemptions are met. And I'm not going to go through, I, I sort of highlighted all the exemptions and stuff. I'm not going to go through that because the point is, is that I asked the pharmacist, I called my local pharmacist at one of the independent pharmacies who I know and I talk to all the time. And I asked him, why did they think they did this? And his response to me was that they want to keep track of everything, of course, because they're, they're, they look at every message you send, every email you send, everything you say on, when you're talking on the phone is being monitored by somebody. So uh -huh. Big Brother is watching. And they want to know that. But I also heard that every prescription, because the e-script prescription, prescription service is set up by the state of California, that every time you use an e-script now, the state gets 30 cents. 
Now, I don't know if that's true, the amount or whatever, but that would make perfect sense to me in a state like California, which is bleeding for uh, bleeding revenue or not. Yeah. I got that backwards. It's it's spending beyond its means and it doesn't have people are leaving and the tax base is shrinking is mm-hmm. to find another way to put a fee or something on something that you do. And so this was not done for safety. This was not done for they, they say it's done because they want to make sure that people aren't getting three prescriptions for um, Vicodin. OK, well, they've had they've got ways of doing that now anyway. They've, they've got cross reporting. I mean, people call me all the time and say they, they spoke to a pharmacist in, in Ohio and they knew the medicines they were taking that were filled in a pharmacy in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So it's all online already anyway. So it wasn't, you know, it's it's always the canard of safety, but down deep, if you look, it's always the money. And that's what, yeah. that was my point. So was, that's the point. That's the point. Okay, I have, a, I have a letter from, I hope I'm pronouncing your first name right, Meaden, M-I-D-O-N, in West okay. Texas. Cool, cool name. Texas. And uh, the, the letter, I just want to read it because it, it just radiates great energy. And she radiates a, a, a spirit like you and I have bliss. It's sort of the don't tread on me spirit when it comes to medical freedom, that sort of thing. So she writes, Dear Dr. Stu, I want to thank you for always being willing to share your wisdom and common sense in the world of idiocy. We are. Cur- I love her already, by the way. We, <laughs> we currently find ourselves. I love a point you made on a recent podcast. Why? Why do we do certain things? Why are we following the elites or ACOG or whomever you think they have a reason to tell us what to do? I am a student midwife here in West Texas. I have a young family, six children that we homeschool, and an amazing husband of almost 19 years who tirelessly serves our community as a law enforcement officer. I have been listening to you for the last two years of my training, and you never disappoint. That's a hard, that's a high bar, but I'll, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. Thank you to your dedication. Thank you to your dedication to your listeners. Oh, in these trying times, I know it must be hard to keep some sanity at times and not go off. You do, <laughs> I do go off. Though, don't I? <laughs> no, not, not so much. Yeah. You're, yeah, pa- you're passionate. You're passionate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You do an excellent job of staying relevant and on point while while still pointing out the fallacies in our current highly regulated and mandated country. I've even had my husband listen a few times because I was in my car saying, amen, or that's right. (laughs) Recently, I listened to your address to the ATM graduates. That's the um, Association of Texas Midwives. And um, that's, if people want to hear that, it's it's still up on my Rumble page, which you can go to rumble.com. And my name is Birthing Instincts there, or it's on my link tree on Instagram. Um, I love you quoting Atlas Shrugged. My husband introduced me to Atlas Shrugged after we were married. I was like you. It was a life-changing book. I would say between it and the Bible, they have probably been the most influential in our life. When Corona hit, my husband decided it was time for our children to hear Atlas Shrugged, too. He read it out loud while we were in lockdown, and the parallels the teenagers saw without our interjection spoke for itself. Wow. At the end of your address, I choked up as well. Yeah, I had a hard time getting out the last couple sentences. You are very eloquent and the passion and care with which you speak affects those listening. Well, thank you. I know at times it may be discouraging, but I want you to know that you have made a major impact on others like me. Thank you for being willing to take the harder road to impact wisdom, excuse me, impart wisdom and training to the rest of us. 
when it would be so easy for you to just retire and enjoy nature, your family, and your horses. <laughs> well, well, I do hope you are able to take more time off and enjoy the fruits of your labor. Thank you for continuing to pour into the rest of us. Oh, that's lovely. Well, there's more. <laughs> oh, there's more. There's more. I also want to say how I appreciate the fact that you, that though you and Bliss do not always see eye to eye, in fact, sometimes differently, you do highly respect and love each other. Mm -hmm. I may roll my eyes at birthing people or chest feeding and am completely drowning in my school's ever-present attempt to belittle me for being white. I'm not even allowed to apply for a scholarship. And in every single class, I have to once again tell how I will address racial disparities in my practice and apologize for my privilege. This is awful. I don't know what midwife school she's going to. You are setting a great example of being able to have meaningful conversation and love each other even when faced with some major differences of opinion. Um, thank you for being a leader in the community birthing world. I hope one day I can attend one of your breach teachings and thank you in person. By the way, I have a great collaboration with a family practitioner here in Sweetwater who loves midwives and actually wrote me a referral to midwifery school. You unicorns are rare. And then she says, P.S. My husband and I recently took a couple's vacation in Florida. On our flight back, we were threatened with being kicked off American Airlines planes if we did not change our, quote, offensive, unquote, masks. The mask says, freedom doesn't look like this mask. Yeah. <laughs> and, they found that, and they found that offensive. Wow. We told to put on a surgical mask they gave us or we were getting kicked off the plane. Wow. The midwife and me wanted to mouth off and get kicked off, but the Christian man and my husband decided it was not our fight that day. So we wore their masks and made it home to our children. Yeah, yeah. Wow, wow, wow. wow. What, it, what was it again? Freedom does not look, look like, like this mask. Yeah, and I mean, you know, that's offensive. Whatever, whether you agree or not. I mean, people wear all kinds of things on their t-shirts. Yeah, uh, I wonder. I so. wonder if it said that on the t-shirt, would they have made them take off their shirts? Yeah. <laughs> Turn your shirt inside out. I mean, Jesus Christ. Oh, okay. my God. Well, thanks for reading that. What a great okay. letter. All right. So let's get, to, uh, let's get to a little break for a second and talk about one of my favorite words in the English language. Bamboobies. Bamboobies. It rolls off the tongue. <laughs> it's one of my love favorite it. words. And they're our sponsor. Yeah, we love that. Great organic products. And I love when you tell a little bit about them. So just say a little bit on their behalf, would you? Yeah. So um, one of the things that I love about them is that they uh, use renewable and organic plant-based formulas and, um, and materials. So it's good for the environment. They're really committed to focusing on comfort for the moms emotionally and physically. Um, and supporting the bump, breastfeeding, and beyond. Um, so the, the um, products that we are focusing on is their organic nipple balm, which has all great natural stuff and none of the bad things. So we can stand behind it as something you can put on and not have to wipe off in between feedings. Um, of course, the number one um, sustainable washing nursing pad that I love so much, which is how I got exposed to the products way, way back, um, super soft and made in a heart shape so that they uh, don't show through your clothing. So you can still look cute while breastfeeding. You know how important that is. And then of course their um, yoga nursing bra. So it's a um, 
racerback design bra that gives you comfort all day. And it's really easy to be able to use those beautiful nursing pads and um, be able to breastfeed your baby as it should be out in public. So check them out. We love them. And when you support um, their company, you support the podcast and being able to continue to come and give you great information. So go to their website at bamboobies.com and check out their inventory. Use the code word instincts. That's I-N-S-T-I-N-C-T-S. And you get 25% off of your purchase. Yeah, check them out. They've got lots of stuff. So go go check it out. Go bamboobies. Say it. Whoop, whoop. Say bamboobies. Say bamboobies. Bamboobies. <laughs> you got something. You got something. You're chewing on something. <laughs> A little bit of trail mix. Trail mix is good. Okay. So we're on your topic. Um, essentially, uh, there's, you know, it's interesting because the, the nomenclature for this is, is very, very variable. And gestational hypertension is a broad category. It's also called hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And it includes chronic hypertension, what we used to call pregnancy-induced hypertension, and preeclampsia, eclampsia syndrome, that sort of thing. So um, how do you how do you want to go about this? Don't forget white coat syndrome. I got a whole thing on white coat syndrome, by the way. Oh, I love it! I love yeah. you. I got some. Um, well, I got some information on it. It's actually, they actually studied it. <laughs> great. I want you to. I want you to um, just do your little your studies because you always have great information, and then I usually follow up with some of the natural stuff. So okay. just just get started, and I'll chime in. All right. Well, all right. I got I got two two articles that I did a, I did a deep dive into there, so I, I I pick out things out of these articles, and again I do this sort of stuff because I think it's relevant, and I don't and I don't really want people to have to try to read all these articles. The problem is that people ask me sometimes they'll ask me like months later they say what was the what's the reference that you you said that from, you know I don't keep a I don't keep a file once I'm done with stuff, it's no like, but it should like be in our show notes it really should. It should be. The problem is, is I print these things out during the week and, and then, you know, they're not, I don't even remember where I got them from. So uh, I'm not good at that. And I, I freely admit it. It's a major flaw in my, uh, in my personality. <laughs> <laughs> One of many. All right. We love, we love what you do for us. So keep going. So here's a, here's the one that's just titled, how can I prevent gestational hypertension? Okay. And it says, currently there's no, sure way to prevent hypertension. Mm -hmm. Factors to high blood pressure can be controlled while others cannot. And the recommendations are, are common sense things like um, use salt as needed for taste. Now, it used to be we used to talk about restricting salt. And then now, yeah, yeah go ahead. You make your comment because you've mentioned this on a podcast uh, months ago, but just re remind people about it. Yeah. So from a midwifery perspective, you don't want to restrict your salt at all. And um, it is, um, if you go on to uh, Brewer's Diet, so drbrewerspregnancydiet.com is the website. They'll give you a ton of information about um, this specific diet, but it's something um, for twins. I usually recommend it. Um, and also if they're having any issues with um, blood pressure starting to elevate into an area where we would 
have to transfer them out of care. And um, they talk very specifically, actually, Stu, about about the salt. So um, you don't want to restrict salt. It actually um, makes a difference when it comes to elevating blood pressure and toxemia or uh, preeclampsia in particular. Um, you want to definitely salt to taste. Salt to taste, right. How do you spell mm-hmm. brewer? Oh, I'm sorry. B-R-E-W-E-R. Okay. There's just different ways to spell it. And when people want to look it up, they'll, they'll yeah, know. Yeah. Thank so. you. Yeah. Um, one of the other suggestions is, is making sure you stay well hydrated. Mm-hmm, very We're much talking so. talking about at least eight glasses. That's 64 ounces of water a day, at least. So, so I'm going to chime in and say um, half your body weight in ounces. In, kilogram, in, in kilograms or pounds? Pounds. So if you weigh 140 pounds, you should drink 70 ounces. That's right. That, mm-hmm. That's weird. Okay, half body weight. Great. Mm-hmm. And that's for, that's for everybody. And that's not just to prevent preeclampsia, by the way. Nope, that's for everybody. But a lot of people aren't drinking that much. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about risk factors in a second. These, these suggestions are, are not necessarily something that, that should only be done for people who are at risk factors, but we'll specifically get into the risk factors in a second. Increase mm-hmm. your amount of protein. Mm-hmm. Decrease the number of fried foods and junk mm-hmm. that you eat. Yeah. Um, these are the only suggestions in this article that, that make sense. The dietary things and things to avoid. Um, there's a lot of information on the internet that people can find about diets to avoid that. But maybe you have some suggestions about foods that, that are beneficial, or even if you wanted to get a little bit into herbal or homeopathic things. Um, we all, we always talk about magnesium, uh, but, but you, you know this better than I do. So go. Okay. Um, so when you start to see that someone is having an elevated, uh, blood pressure, um, the first thing you want to do is, is approach it from what are the lifestyle changes that we, this is one of the ways that midwifery is really, um, superior (laughs) to the obstetrical model really is that because we're talking for an hour because we're asking about lifestyle, we're talking about exercise, we're talking about nutrition, we already know uh, how to counsel this person in terms of where they might be really strong and where they might really need support. So um, the lifestyle changes are, you know, common sense, again, stuff. So make sure you're doing light exercises daily, which is something that we're usually already counseling someone on, walking, stationary bike, yoga, swimming, those kinds of things. Um, meditation or relaxation techniques. This is something very first thing that I really stress with people who are starting to have elevated blood pressure is like, I want you to be taking time every day to pray, meditate, read, sit in nature, whatever it is for you, but relaxation, because uh, this can definitely be something that could elevate somebody's blood pressure. Um, Reduction in stressors. So, you know, starting to talk to them about what are the things that might be able to be stressing you out. Um, maybe they need to slow down with work or stop working altogether. Maybe there's some relationship issues that you need to talk through. Um, right now, there's a lot of just life, you know, the world, uh, what's happening. But if you are committed to having your out-of-hospital birth and you're committed to having a safe um, experience, this is something at this point when your pre- blood pressure starts to go up, you have to take this very seriously and you have to really 
approach it head on. Um, a couple of other things that can be helpful is acupuncture. If you have access to acupuncture, acupuncture can be great. So in LA, I always recommended that people go get acupuncture when we started to deal with this. Um, and hypnotherapy is another modality that can be really helpful, especially for somebody who's on the anxious side and really is just struggling to reduce their stress. Hypnosis is something that can work on a subconscious level and can um, really help someone that has that kind of uh, personality to be able to affect it in a way that they couldn't just kind of thinking on their own. Um, Okay, so the dietary and supplemental recommendations, Stu already uh, talked about uh, water intake. Um, some other really hydrating juices are watermelon and cucumber. So I would um, add those into your hydration daily. Um, garlic is a big one that can be really helpful. So it just depends on where we're at. Are we like really seeing things happen? Like with preeclampsia, we're seeing some spilling of the protein. You know, we're 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 really like, we're getting, um, labs done and all of that. Um, you might want to get more into the herbal protocols that I'm going to talk about, but if we're just seeing a slow increase in blood pressure or somebody who's already dealing with blood pressure issues, you, you want to just make it as simple for them as possible. So anything that can be done with food or things that they already have in their home, they're not going to feel overwhelmed by this. They can just start where they're at. Um, so increase garlic, parsley, and onion in large quantities in your food. So that's pretty easy to do. Um, most people are already taking a magnesium supplement. So if they can switch to a cal mag potassium supplement, um, make sure that they're taking the magnesium. That's the one that really uh, it's the most effective. Is there, is, there a, is there a milligram amount on that list? Or do we know that? I don't have, mm -mm, I don't have a milligram do amount. Yeah. Um, avoid strong spices. Okay. So you want to take out black and white pepper, mustard, ginger, nutmeg, anything strong like that. You want to eliminate except for cayenne. Cayenne is one that can be really helpful, especially if your diastolic number is high. So you can, you can take cayenne. You can even take it in capsules, capsule form, if you're the kind of person like that just doesn't like that kind of spice. Um, obviously, this should have been something you were doing already, but really kind of go into it is avoid all stimulants, caffeine, black tea, chocolate, et cetera. Anything that's a stimulant you want to eliminate from your diet. Um, you also discussed increasing your protein. So 75 to hundred grams is normally what I would recommend for any pregnancy. Um, if you're dealing with borderline preeclampsia or, um, hypertension, you want to increase it to hundred to 120. And that is on the brewers website that I talked about. They will talk about the kind of foods that you should be eating. Um, and how to get those, um, that protein, um, most midwives know how to help people increase protein. But, um, if you're a, just a pregnant mom who's listening, um, that's a really great resource. Um, whole grains, lots of fruit and vegetables. This is some of the counseling that I'm already doing with people, but a rainbow a day so that you can get a variety of, um, minerals from lots of different kinds of fruits. And so each one of those colors represents different vitamins and minerals that you're getting. Okay, so then let's get into some of the supplements. Um, hops tea, nightly, um, corn silk tincture, skullcap, passionflower, two to four caps daily, 
Hawthorne tincture, fenugreek. Those are all great. Um, and again, I am really, um, I try and not overwhelm people. So it really depends on the severity of what we're talking about. If we're borderline, I probably would have them do, start with things like passion flower and the hops tea and the corn silk tincture, and then add in other things as we go. Because if you give someone like seven supplements, sometimes that's really hard for them to, to do. But the ones that are really committed, they're going to do them. Um, and so that's the protocol that I would use. Um, and I, I've, um, I've been lucky enough to have you as somebody I can consult with. So I think I did have two mamas that we weren't able to, they didn't have preeclampsia. They just had hypertension. And um, you were able to give them some medication during their pregnancy so that they could stay in care and keep things in check. Um, but everybody else who I've worked with, um, especially the moms who are borderline preeclampsia, have never had to transfer someone out for preeclampsia. We've always been able to turn it around. Yeah, um, it's, so these things, it's been really rare in the home birthing world that I've seen somebody with true preeclampsia. Yeah, these things really do work, um, but you have to have a mom who's going to follow through because it's a lot. It's a lot of work. I mean, that's a lot of it's a mouthful that I just said. So they have to be really committed to um, taking really good care of themselves. And what happens is, is they learn so much in the process, and their lifestyle um, selections tend to change a lot. So someone who might um, you know, not be taking really great care of themselves to begin with really finds that motivation and gets empowered to see they feel better. They're, um, they look better. Their pregnancy is going in a positive direction. So okay. there you go. Thank you. Yeah. By You're the welcome. way, what you just talked about there was more information than I or any other obstetrician would ever really, I, I won't say all, but pretty much all. Uh, obstetricians would ever be able to give the client. We just don't know this stuff. We're not trained in this stuff, that yeah. sort of thing. So I've, I've learned a, a multitude of things from, from the midwifery model. And I just love when you lay out these things like that. You've, you've done it on other topics as well. The one thing I would add is that uh, with, when it comes with relaxation and meditation is posture and, and positioning. Uh, there is some advantage when you already do have swelling or you do have your higher risk for blood pressure issues or something to stay off being off your back um, when you're resting. So you want to be wedged to a side. If you fall asleep and you always find yourself waking up flat on your back, find a body pillow or something that helps you rotate your hips slightly to one side. Rotating toward the left is better simply because of the anatomic relationship between the uterus and the great vessels that run behind it. But the right side is also fine. Both are better than being flat on your back. This is specifically for people who are dealing with um, elevated blood pressure. Yes. Well, no, I mean, no, no, it's a better position to be in, in pregnancy at any time you should really, you're, you're, because the blood flow to the uterus comes from below the point of compression when you're laying flat on your back. So you're decreasing blood flow to your lower extremities and ultimately to your uterus. For most women, it's not a problem. And I don't want anybody, people will tell me, oh God, I, I slept on my back last night. Did I, did I smother my baby or something like that? And the answer, of course, is no. But this is, if you can do this, it's just better hemodynamics for you to be on, uh, off on your side. And that uh, it also includes not just sitting in a chair because in that position, you're also sort of compressing it. So if you're sitting in a chair, you want to sort of be reclining off to one side like you do on Passover dinner. 
<laughs> know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, so I have a very different opinion about normal pregnancy. Um, I won't get into all of it today, but um, I would say that recommendation, I would definitely um, stand behind for someone who's dealing with something, but normal, healthy, pregnant moms, um, that could be problematic. So what could be, which part, the, the, the being on one side all the time? Um, well, for one thing, you're not, you're, you're not going to cut off circulation to no. your body without knowing you, your body is wise enough to know, and you're going to wake up and turn over. So the most important thing is just to get your sleep. But I do like, um, the wedge for people who are feeling really nervous about it. Like, because some people get so much information and then they start to freak themselves out. And so it's like, yeah, put a wedge and then you and also when you're rotated on your side, if you're having a lot of problems with ankle edema or something like that, even if you're not preeclamptic, sometimes yeah. it happens in pregnancy due to the, yeah. or, changes between hydrostatic and orthostatic pressure going on in your body. Um, yeah. When you're on your side, you, you decrease the venous, you increase venous return from your lower extremities, which increases uh, and you increase perfusion to your kidneys. So your body's able to pee things out, which is like what a lot of us, even when you're not pregnant, if you have like sock, sock marks in your ankles and you go to bed, you wake up, they're gone. All right. Yeah. And that's because you mobilize that fluid. You probably woke up two to five times at night to go pee but you're mobilizing that fluid. So that's also a postural thing. But again, these things are not, ultimately, you're right. They're not vital and you're not, you yeah. can't hurt your baby that way. Okay. Yeah. So the sitting up ones too, the only thing I want to say about that when I say it harmful is that um, slouching and not sitting straight up later in pregnancy, you know, all of the reclining chairs and all of this stuff that we have where we sit on the couch and we're, we're you know, really like, your, your body gets into the C shape. Then we get these babies that are in a, a mal position. We have long dysfunctional labors, uh, painful back labors because you've got posterior babies. So I would say be, you know, be cautious when uh, doing your Passover dinner position later in pregnancy. Did you see my coffee cup, by the way? I didn't. It says, let's keep the dumb fuckery to a minimum today. <laughs> I, I love thank, it. You don't drink coffee. I know, but I, I want to thank Sylvia and Amarillo, Texas for sending me this. Uh, I love it. Thank uh, you. Right. Great. Oh. All right. So let's um, let's switch to uh, who's at risk. Okay, great. Because uh, preeclampsia affects three to five percent of pregnancies. Um, those people that are at risk for preeclampsia are people that have had preeclampsia in a previous pregnancy. Um especially if it was early preeclampsia, if it was severe and they ended up having to be delivered prematurely because they had it. Um, if you're overweight, you have slightly greater risk. If you're under 20 or over 40, you have slightly greater risk. You know, weird. Yeah, it's, just, it's weird. And it's also those numbers that I talk about. How come it's not 40, 40 and three months and four days? You know, So they round it. Actually, the paper that I have here says older than 35. But because I read in other papers, they were talking about 40, 35 is this really dumb number that we talked about many times on the podcast. Yeah. If you have twins or other or triplets or more, uh, clearly there's a greater risk. Uh, if you had high blood pressure or kidney disease before you got pregnant. So if you've had renal disease or you're chronic hypertensive, they're more likely to go on and develop preeclampsia. If you're African-American, you're more likely to do that. And if you have a family history of preeclampsia, and certain health conditions such as diabetes, lupus, uh, 
Polycystic ovarian syndrome, interestingly enough, is also a risk factor. But again, these it it's these things, risk factors don't mean that you need to sit there and worry about it. You can't, like I said in the very first sentence, you can't know who's going to develop this. You can't be thinking about it because as you said, that that adds more stress and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, sort of. Yeah. And if most of most of the obstetricians and most of the women are going to obstetricians are not discussing nutrition and water intake, which is was my experience in my second pregnancy, you're going to have more people getting sick. So as someone who's listening to us, you, there's a lot you can do to be preventative by by doing the good nutrition and the recommended lifestyle that we've talked about earlier. Um, OK, so here here is a. Um... We're going to take a little deeper dive now into the sort of the physiology and and other right. information so that pe people can look at it for themselves and figure out where they might fall on this spectrum if it even applies to them. So um, the term hypertensive disorders of pregnancy is an umbrella term. It includes pre-existing hypertension, gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, and eclampsia, and can complicate up to 10% of pregnancies. Um, the definition of hypertension in pregnancy has not always been standardized, but I love this. You're going to love this. Okay. Following the National High Blood Pressure Education Program Working Group on High Blood Pressure in Pregnancy Recommendation, or as we like to call it, the NHBPEPWGHBPP. <laughs> That's a lot. What the name? What, what? Who's naming a group? Like, how do you even get a letterhead with that on? <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh, the recommendation is currently a systolic blood pressure of greater than 140 and or a diastolic blood pressure of greater than 90. And the diagnosis generally requires two separate measurements. And in the standard obstetrical teaching, it's two measurements at least six hours apart. But that's what we're taught to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ear hypertension is systolic blood pressure greater than 160 or diastolic blood pressure greater than 110. Oh, excuse me, and or. So it can be, you could have 160 over 80 and that's severe hypertension, or you could have 140 over 112 and that's severe hypertension. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, chronic or pre-existing hypertension is hypertension that's discovered preconception or prior to 20 weeks to station. Say that one more time. Chronic hypertension uh -huh. is, is hypertension that you have before you get pregnant. Mm -hmm. or it develops prior to 20 weeks gestation, which is interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that yeah. is interesting. <laughs> right. Gestational hypertension is hypertension that appears de novo after 20 weeks mm -hmm. and then normalizes after the pregnancy is over. That makes sense. And the question is, is when we talk about it, it's, it's usually they say six weeks, but actually it's probably more like 12 weeks after delivery. You should give a woman up to 12 weeks to normalize her blood pressure post-delivery before you start to call her chronically hypertensive. Okay. Yeah. Preeclampsia, eclampsia is de novo hypertension after 20 weeks gestation, accompanied by at least one of the following. Of course, people may know this proteinuria, which is protein in your urine, which is why when you go in, most practitioners, not all, certainly not, you know, um, traditional midwives probably don't dip urine every time you come in. But, you know, a lot of offices do, we do. And people have the right to say no, they don't want to do it. But we check for protein in the urine. Uh, somebody that um, develops acute kidney injury or liver involvement, neurologic complications, which could be a seizure, uh, altered mental status, blindness, 
severe headaches, visual scotomata, which are sort of flashing lights. They're not just a little floater in your eyeball. Um, and hematologic complications such as a lower platelet count. And then uteroplacental dysfunction is also considered part of the diagnosis, such as fetal growth restriction, abnormal umbilical artery Doppler studies, or uh, stillbirth. Yeah. So, um, that would create somebody who's probably got severe preeclampsia. Any of those things other than proteinuria. When you start to have liver involvement, low platelet count, seizures, uh, growth restriction, that's yeah. that's... That's categorized as severe preeclampsia. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So the things that we're doing besides the, the urine dip is checking for swelling, pitting edema, um, talking about headaches and visual disturbances, um, and then obviously taking their blood pressure. These are the things that we do to screen for preeclampsia throughout the pregnancy. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And... Um, just so we're clear, because we have an international audience, the terminology that we're using here isn't necessarily the same in your country. So you have to check that out because there's there's different guidelines to use it depending on which country you're in. Yeah. Um, one important aspect of diagnosing and managing hypertension in pregnancy is ruling out secondary causes. Examples of secondary forms of hypertension are chronic kidney disease, um, obstructive sleep apnea, huh. Cushing syndrome, something called pheochromocytoma, which is, I think, a tumor of your adrenal gland. That's a really weird tumor. But that might be um, one with an M, I can't remember it. But they're, they're very, very rare. Mm -hmm. uh, thyroid disease and rheumatologic diseases, such as scleroderma or mixed connective tissue diseases, uh, and coarctation of the aorta. So those are things that are sec secondary forms of hypertension. They're not what we call essential hypertension which is hypertension without a reason, which is what most people who have hypertension have. But right. if you find a young person, 18 years old, 30 years old, who's got really high blood pressure, it's probably not genetically uh, inherited hypertension. It is probably some other underlying pathology and you need to look. Yeah, for that. makes okay. sense. That's for us. I mean, that's not for most people listening. Okay. Yeah. Um, any hypertensive disorder of pregnancy can result in preeclampsia. It occurs in up to 35% of women with gestational hypertension and up to 25% of women with chronic hypertension. So people who have high blood pressure, obviously their risk goes up of, of then proceeding onward on the um, spectrum of, of hypertensive disorders to, to preeclampsia. So when you have somebody that's got chronic hypertension or developed gestational hypertension, um, but no signs of preeclampsia. Those are some of the people that you really want to get onto the suggestions that you gave earlier. Yeah. The underlying pathophysiology is interesting. It upholds this transition to or super, superposition of preeclampsia is not well understood, but it's thought to be related to a mechanism of reduced placental perfusion inducing systemic vascular endothelial dysfunction. And the resultant placental hypoxia induces a cascade of inflammatory events. Yeah. Yeah, they're not really sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's beyond the scope of this podcast to really talk about that. But I just think that we've always thought, at least since I, as long as I can remember, we thought that um, that it had something to do with the placenta was the thing that triggered preeclampsia, but we weren't really quite sure how. Yeah. Okay. Um, but that's what that said, right? Something about placental perfusion. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And this is current, but, I, but they've been thinking this for a really long time. Still, yeah. no one's ever really proven what the cause is. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Early onset preeclampsia occurring before 34 weeks gestation is thought to be primarily caused by the syncytiotrophoblast stress leading to poor placentation, whereas late onset preeclampsia after 34 weeks is understood to be secondary to the placenta outgrowing its own blood circulation. Hmm. So it, it's obviously an early, and, and the early one is more severe and more commonly associated with growth restriction, obviously, because yeah. it occurs early. Yeah, um, and less common in yeah. general. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Target blood pressure. What should we be shooting for? How aggressively to treat non-severe hypertension remains controversial. The differences are due to the paucity of data that clearly delineate benefits and risks of different degrees of blood pressure control. Um, Cochrane's reviews, which are every most people in medicine know what they are. They're they're an organization that looks at all the data and then comes out with sort of guidelines or or um, risks uh, or, or how good is the data? That's sort of what they do. And it concluded that the use of antihypertensives halves the number of women who develop severe hypertension, but has minimal, if any, effect on baby death at any time through the first 28 days postpartum and the development of preeclampsia, preterm delivery, or small for gestational age. So in other words, if somebody is hypertensive, it may, and you put them on medication, it may lower the risk of them developing severe hypertension, but it ultimately is probably not going to change the outcome. Interesting. But it obviously, yeah. in our world, if we want to delay intervention, if we want to prevent people from having to go get induced because their, their high blood pressure is high, then, then the idea of using medication makes a lot of sense. And then yeah. it goes into really a deep dive into the medication, which I'm not going to specifically get into, but we'll get into a little bit of that later on. Um, Here's something that's interesting. It's about home blood pressure monitoring. Um, home blood pressure recording, this is, gets back to the white coat syndrome thing that you mentioned yeah. before. Yeah. Home blood pressure recording is being examined as a means of improving monitoring during this period and detecting white coat hypertension, masked yeah. hypertension, and sustained hypertension. I'll explain those in a second. Okay. While the exact prevalence of white coat hypertension, elevated blood pressure in the office not present at home is not known, ACOG recommends ambulatory blood pressure monitoring for those patients in whom it is suspected. And we do this. This is what we do. All right. A prospective observational study found that 32% of people with high blood pressure had white coat hypertension as opposed, as confirmed by 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. Another study found that approximately 60% diagnosed with hypertension in the office during the second trimester had white coat syndrome. 60? Yeah, a small study, but 60%. Yeah, yeah. In addition, home blood pressure monitoring may identify mass hypertension, and that's when blood pressure is normal in the clinic, but elevated at home. Hmm. Very small percentage, about 3%, 4% of people who might, might have that sort of hypertension. The problem is, is that we in, our, in the birthing instincts world do not recommend that everybody go out and get a blood pressure monitor and start checking their blood pressure at home for obvious reasons, Bliss. You know, you, you start to look for a problem and then you start stressing about the problem and then yeah. you find the problem. Yeah. So a lot of people will go do that or they'll go buy a pulse oximeter. Uh, I know a lot of people because of COVID went out and bought a pulse oximeter. It's like, okay, but are you short of breath? No. Well, then why are you using your pulse oximeter? Okay. <laughs> if you get short of breath, you're going to go see your doctor. And, but anyway, so it's the same sort of thing. 
But yeah. for, for a select group of, of our clients, using a home blood pressure monitor makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for me on those people that like are like, I'm stressed out, my blood pressure goes up when I have people around. This has been ha- this happened to me before. You know, if we suspect that it might be, um, I just ask them to get one and um and then I have them take the blood pressure before I show up for birth or um for the visits and send it to me, send me a, you know, a video of it so that I have it in my records. But it really, it's, it's so interesting. It's such a fascinating thing that, you know, even somebody like me who they trust and love, and I'm not stressing them out, just the broad blood pressure going on and them being concerned that it might be elevated sometimes elevates their blood pressure. It's so interesting. And something that may contribute to that can be the, the, the trip over to the office and dealing with traffic or running late. So one of the things I suggest to people is when a lot of times you go to the doctor's office, the first thing they do when they bring you back is they take your blood pressure. Mm-hmm. All right. You might ask them to say, listen, um, can we take my blood pressure after the visit? Mm-hmm. Um, or at least wait 10, 20 minutes because you've just rushed in, you went up the elevator, you went into the doctor's office and they call you back and they put you in that little chair and they take your weight, which all raises everybody's blood pressure, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, they take your blood pressure and it could be a little bit high. So yeah. why, why, why do that? Cause it's, it's, it's specious. It's false. It's not necessary. Yeah. And the other thing that can be a good sign, although tradition, you know, like uh, clinically you're not supposed to take the blood pressure laying down. Um, if you put a woman on her left side and you get her in a relaxed state, so you maybe give her a little bit of massage or have her go to a place that's really beautiful in her mind, or, you know, you have her do a little quiet meditation, um, and you retake it and it's considerably lower, that's a really good sign because it's showing that sh- her blood pressure is being affected by her mood and her state and, and that you will be able to bring it down with these kind of techniques in labor or something like that. Um, if it doesn't respond to that, um, then usually you've got a bigger problem going on. Yep, and for the people that, that the rare people that end up we put on medication, Mm-hmm. Um, in the home birthing world, like with if if midwives can prescribe or if if midwives have a, a physician they rely on to try to keep the home birth situation going, those people probably having a blood pressure cuff at home is a good idea because then you can see how the medicine's working and you can decide yeah. to increase the dose without making them drive to the office, get in the car, drive to the office, come to the office and get your blood pressure checked, which it sort of is counterproductive. Yeah. So those midwives do that are on your program where they pay you an annual fee. Is that the kind of thing that you'd be able to do for them is, um, yeah. Prescribe blood pressure medication. Okay. Yes. As soon as I get the e-script app. No, just (laughs) exactly. No, I can. Yes, I can. And I can. And I, right now, even in other States, it seems to be not a problem. I'm I'm not sure how legal it is, but when I call a pharmacy in another state to call something in, as as long as it's not a controlled substance. Um, yeah. I'm not getting any flack. One of my clients is tr- is traveling and needs a uh, gets a bladder infection or or needs Valtrex or something like that. They they're filling it without a question. So yeah, good. Oh, and I forgot to mention that just because a woman has hypertension, whether it's chronic or gestational, does not necessarily mean that they need to be transferred out of care. Everybody needs to do what they are comfortable with. They need to do what their guidelines tell them to do or their protocols tell them to do or their state laws tell them to do. But um, I just want people to understand that this, like 
well-controlled diabetes is not an absolute contraindication to giving a woman the option of having a birth at the place that she chooses. Um, clearly, preeclampsia developed early on is, uh, is not the same thing. And uh, somebody who has very mild preeclampsia, if they're term or if they've got a favorable cervix and you want to try to induce them, that's, that's also a possibility. That might be a little getting out of the comfort zone of most people. Uh, so everybody has to independently think and individualize their care. And that's typical of what we always say here on the podcast. Um, so let's talk a little bit about treatment, I think, all right, briefly. Um, there are three drugs that, that are used in pregnancy. The, one's called methyl dopa, which is aldamet. One is called labetalol, and the other one's called um, uh, nifedipine. And they all have their pros and cons, and doctors have their, and have their preferences. They all have benefits and risks. So here's a little bit about each one of them, okay? Pregnant women taking calcium channel blockers. Let's see, wait, am I on the right page here? Yeah. Okay. Pregnancy women taking calcium channel blockers were less likely to have persistent high blood pressure when compared to those treated with hydralazine. So hydralazine is a medication they often use in the hospital, but we don't really use that in the home setting. Um, severe hypertension in pregnancy with without end organ complication is considered as a medical urgency, um, not a medical emergency. Okay. So blood pressures need to be reduced to less than 160 over 110. So this is talking about a woman who's got what's almost malignant hypertension, they come to the hospital, or if they came to your office and you had a blood pressure of 180 over 120, you would probably send them in. And yeah. the job of the hospital is to lower their blood pressure gradually. You don't wanna drop it precipitously because that could influence with or interfere with perfusion of the placenta, which is used to having this high blood pressure and suddenly it drops and, and the perfusion of the mom's brain too, could if you drop it too soon. So, but it isn't when you've got that blood pressure, doesn't mean that you need an emergency C-section. Yeah. <laughs> so clear about that. Just yeah. get the blood pressure under control. And then if it's, if there's no evidence of, of severe preeclampsia or anything else going on, then they can get you on medication and you can continue to be pregnant, especially if it's really early in your pregnancy, 32 weeks, 33 weeks. Okay. So would they use magnesium for this or just only when you're in labor? Um, a mag sulfate would be used for people with preeclampsia. And, and then if you needed mag sulfate, then yes, you should probably be delivered. Okay. This is talking about stabilizing people with hypertension. Yeah, so mag so sulfate is not something that should be, it's necessarily used strictly for for um, gestational hypertension or even chronic hypertension. Some doctors will do it, but the data doesn't really say it's right or wrong. I mean, it's, it, what magnesium does is it, it, it's not being used to lower your blood pressure. It's being used to raise the seizure threshold. <laughs> that doesn't slide off the tongue saying seizure threshold um, very easily. But um, it is, uh, so that's what it's used for. And people with hypertension alone are really not at significantly greater risk of, of a seizure, right? Okay, so when you, if a midwife did send someone in because their blood pressure was that high, they're just gonna monitor, do labs and give them some kind of medication. Yeah, they'll give them intravenous medication to bring it down uh -huh. or sublingual nifedipine, depending on the institution and what they like to use, right? Okay. Um, the degree of hypertension to which to institute treatment is a subject of controversy, of course. Most guidelines recommend starting therapy at a blood pressure level of above 150 over 100. 
So in my practice, if I have women that are consistently 150 over 90, um, no evidence of preeclampsia, I would try all the other things first, but I would, I would not be resistant to putting that person on a, on a antihypertensive medication. Um, but you try, you know, in our world, we try the other things first. Uh, so prevention of preeclampsia, um, since 1979, aspirin has been shown to prevent preeclampsia. We've done a podcast, I think we talked about aspirin. Uh, a meta-analysis of 45 randomized studies published in 2017 demonstrated that the effects of aspirin are dose-dependent and also correlated with gestational age at which aspirin is initiated. I think if you remember this, Bliss, when initiated at less than 16 weeks and that a higher dose is aspirin was more effective at preventing preeclampsia, severe preeclampsia, and fetal growth restriction, whereas, a, whereas there was a smaller chance it was initiated after 16 weeks. So that's only for somebody that you, that you know has had uh, a previous history or something. Yeah, that's with the risk factor profile. You might want to consider putting those people on... Yeah. Aspirin. The dose of aspirin in the United States is 81 milligrams. The dose in Europe is um, 100 to 150 milligrams. And the uh, dose in, Europe, in England is 75 milligrams. So you can see there's a lot. But we use 81 in the United States because that's how it comes in a, in a, in a baby aspirin. <laughs> so Makes it easy. Yeah, you can't really get 100 because then you'd have to take one and a quarter baby aspirin. Yeah. They're not exactly breakable. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, as early as the 1950s, epidemiologic studies showed an association between the rates of preeclampsia and eclampsia in populations whose diets were rich in calcium supplementation, excuse me, reduced rates in people that took calcium supplementation. But it's interesting because study went on and said, suggests that high dose cal calcium supplementation greater than one gram a day is associated with lower rates of preeclampsia, hypertension, and preterm birth but they found that it's not as effective um, on those things with, uh, when patients already had an adequate dietary in, uh, calcium intake. So in countries like America and stuff like that, you, you're probably high dose calcium isn't gonna necessarily make a difference, but people who have diets that are low in calcium or are normally calcium deficient, they can find a benefit from supplementing for calcium. I don't see any harm in taking calcium, a lot of our pregnant ladies just take it anyway. What do you think about calcium? Um, I am neutral on calcium. Alex has, a, who is one of my preceptors, has a strong um, aversion to calcium. Um, and there's a there's a book that she talks about called the Calcium Myth, which I actually haven't been able to read yet. But um, is so I, is this book is it the Calcium Lie, or huh. is it called the Calcium Myth? I thought it was myth, but maybe it's lie. Maybe it's two of them. Yeah. You should ask Alex. Yeah, it's in my little library over here on my There desk. you go. So um, you should read it. Get back to it. Yeah, and you know, we we suggested CalMag with potassium, right? So there is mm -hmm. some Cal mm -hmm. in the CalMag, right? Okay. The, I'm talking about for every pregnant woman versus when we're having an issue. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that you know at, at that age we necessarily have calcium uh, issues in this country. Uh, I think obviously. For menopausal women, calcium supplementation seems to do some good at, at delaying osteoporosis. Nothing prevents osteoporosis. There's just, you can slow it down. Um, uh, and then the, the, they're, they're investigating, but I hope they never 
find it at, um, reasonable. They're investigating the role of statins uh, to treat and prevent preeclampsia. So right now it's not available and I'm not sure that I would want my pregnant women taking a statin. Again, I, that may be a bias on my own. Um, treatments of choice we talked about were methyl dopa and um, let's see, uh, calcium channel blockers like bifedipine. Oh, and by the way, calcium channel blockers are the preferred line in most guidelines. I just want to remind everybody on the podcast that that's off-label usage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, not indicated for use in uh, pregnancy and, and for hypertension. It's use, it use, its use is indicated for unstable angina. Okay. Now, there's an interesting thing, and then they go on and talk also about... Um, um, uh, albumet, uh, labetalol too, but we don't need to get into treatment today. Um, okay. Interestingly, talk about non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication like Advil. And the, the, I want to just read this information. Hypertensive disorders of pregnancy can occur after parturition, which means after delivery. Mm -hmm. um, the causes yeah. of postpartum hypertension are multifactorial as the body attempts to return to pre-pregnant physiology which includes mm -hmm. mobilization of the extracellular fluid into the intracellular space. Blood pressure may be further elevated by fluids and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs provided as part of the supportive care. So a lot of times we tell people postpartum to take Advil. For just it, it normal comfort. Yeah, for yeah. normal after pains, that sort of thing. Yeah. We even carry it. Some of us carry Motrin in our, uh, in our birth kits. Um, mm -hmm. But it actually can exacerbate postpartum preeclampsia. So just be a little bit more careful in people who are, are, pre, are, are hypertensive in yeah. using postpartum Advil. That's something I didn't really even know. Good. They did two randomized controlled trials comparing Tylenol to ibuprofen in women with severe preeclampsia in the postpartum period achieved conflicting results. One demonstrated significantly more hypertension in the ibuprofen arm, and the other found that there was no difference in the duration of severe hypertension or mean arterial pressure. As such, the ACOG does not advise against their use in the postpartum period. So in other words, they're saying that there is, there's not enough data to say what I just said a minute ago, but yeah. if you can find other alternatives and you know, Arnica and Afterese and some of the things that, see, look at me, you look at, you're looking at me like with, like, look at that guy. He's just, he's, he's so proud, so proud. <laughs> So um, that's essentially it. Great. On, on hypertension. That was good. I think we we covered a lot. Yeah. Did we do we did we miss anything? Probably not. No, I think we did a good job. Mm -hmm. Okay. I have. Um, I think I'll save this letter for another time. I, I I wanted to read something, and I don't know. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'll be the only one that gets a kick out of it. <laughs> but I have this folder that I was cleaning out some stuff and I found stuff from just after my, my, the end of my residency program and early in my career. And when you finish your residency program, they have a banquet for the outgoing senior residents. And I found something called the Ode to the Cedars Sinai Seniors, 1985 to 86. <laughs> and so I, I, I'd like to just end on this note, if I might. Like, okay. Give me that permission. Okay. 
It had been pretty rocky for the Cedars crew that year, with two positions open and obstetrics in high gear. But they held fast and triumphed as no one shirked their share, yet Cigna sent more patients to compound their wear and tear. The seniors they took over in July a whole year back, but with four remaining to take call, their future sure looked black. But these were noble souls who shouldered this great weight, <laughs> and they just prayed for June to come with its liberation date. Yes, these four deserve our praise and a word in more detail, and, and with some mention made of how they pursued this holy grail. There was Sudler, Osomelo, and Nelson catching flies, and fishing, Fishbine having conniption fits, and Ruth about eight, eight months size. <laughs> yes, Sudler was the laid back one on vacation while on call, yet she always knew the latest dirt via gossip in the hall. And she now goes and joins the staff of her cool, sh she won't be rid. She'll still get away with murder the way she always did. <laughs> and Nelson, he's so laid back, horizontal was his style. He kept the chief room occupied while we all tried not to smile but finally found a place to live, so our mailroom has been freed. But though he's gone, the cry lives on, where's Nelson? Where indeed? Oh God, <laughs> these are so funny for me because I just remember these things. Yeah. And Ruthie was efficient, perhaps the most so of the bunch, till she became maternal and spent three months losing lunch. The timing, it was perfect, a stroke of genius in a word, to have the baby at the end, but still while she's insured. <laughs> Uh-oh. And next is Stuart Fishbine. His brow is always creased. Oh. He's held all, or Valium <laughs> at least. We chose him for our leader, a job not for the meek. Uh -uh. With wrath born of frustration, he changed the schedule every week. <laughs> so these were then the seniors. Their term is now complete. They finished formal training, a feeling oh so sweet. To Cedars, it's a fond goodbye with no room but for buts or maybes. And would they do it all again? they just as soon have rabies. <laughs> what did they leave us then, these most resilient chiefs? What knowledge did they give us? What theories, what beliefs? From Sudler, we learned leisure time to always take a break. From Ruth, we learned mul to multiply some family plans to make. From Stuart, we learned yelling to scream for what is right. It stays the same. And for Nelson, wait, where's Nelson? It was just as good. Good night. I'm sorry. It's just it's just very funny for me. Oh. Yeah. I love that you haven't changed much. Um, you're still passionate and uh I don't yell as much. I did yell back then. Yeah. And yeah. I thought and I found out that yelling back then, you know, I learned that that's a sign of insecurity that people who stomp their feet and yell and stuff like that are are, are insecure you've grown uh, in that way i was i was always put so much pressure on myself to have really perfect outcomes and make thing everyone everything run smoothly and when it didn't because people didn't have my values like sudler and nelson <laughs> <laughs> it was always tougher and we were sure, i mean we we're supposed to have five or possibly six chief uh, chief residents we had four and the last thing I'll say about that is, you know, we, I think we made about $27,000 a year as a chief resident in 1986. And when we lost one so that there were only four of us doing the work of five, 
I went to the chief, I went to the chairman's department uh, office and I asked him if we could we could split the other twenty seven thousand dollars between the four of us. Yeah. And he laughed me out of the room. <laughs> I, I think that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. We're yeah. five five people are doing it. Four people are doing the work of five. Why not take the yeah. extra salary? And, yeah. and, and it, even if he didn't think it was a good idea, he could have at least treated me well. But this was a different era. It was 86. You would not get away with that now. You yeah. know, I would have said I would have sent a, a, in a person of color to ask the question and then and then would have been great. <laughs> I was a freshman in high school in 86, by the way. Well, most of our listeners weren't born yet, I suspect. <laughs> that's probably true okay well it's been a great episode thank you for reading that and all of the work that you did to bring us great information on uh hypertension and preeclampsia and i uh yeah look forward to so check, out the brewer, check out the brewer's website we'll put that up on the on the show notes and mm-hmm. also uh support our sponsor bamboobies go to their website and do some hunting all right do it okay babe have a good day see you later Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 